Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. In the, in the chapter that begins here, chapter 21 through verse 10, which begins in the Hebrew, Kitetse, which means when you go out, and it extends over through chapter 25... Uh, where the next portion begins at chapter 26. This is a, this is a whole series of very interesting commandments. In fact, let me just to uh, warm everybody up to these interesting commandments, let me read for you verse 15 of chapter 21. And if a man has two wives, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And you, you were sitting there saying, well, you know, the, 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 these commandments do apply to us. You know, you've been trying to convince your brethren and so forth, and then here comes this verse, and if a man has two lives, well, obviously this doesn't apply to me. Obviously. But it does. It does apply. See, there's something in here being taught that goes in this passage that is very, very subtle. And if you were to go in here and study, you wouldn't find what this subject is really about because the word's not in these verses. I'm telling you that this this passage of Scripture is about a particular very, very important spiritual theme to you, but you won't hear the word in these verses. Only if you were to maybe go over to the Haftor portion, which is Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 10, would you maybe get an inkling of what Moses is really trying to teach her. Because here's what he does. He starts off with a whole series of laws that have to do with domestic relations. A whole series of special conditions about how you take a wife, under what conditions, how will you deal with the issues of how you enter into the marriage. And then all of a sudden it just jumps to something new. And in verse 18 it says, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of the hometown, and they shall say to the elders of his church, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the many of the men of the city will stone him to death, so you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear of it and fear." You know what they call that passage? The commandment that has never been obeyed. That's what that's called. This is the, if you read the commentaries, this is a commandment of God that Israel willingly says has never been obeyed. And they have no intention to obey. And it has something to do with this theme that is in this passage. If you look a little bit further, it, it looks like the subject's kind of changing on us because here's what it says in verse 22. And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now that's getting a little more intriguing. Now we're starting to get into something that, as a messianic, we are starting to kind of identify with because the fact is Messiah Yeshua was hanged on a tree. 
And there's a specific commandment here by the hand of Moses concerning what is to be done if that happens. A lot of people picture the crucifixion as an event of uh, Romans, where the Romans, uh, they, they put this kind of a, a big uh, post in the ground, and then the condemned had to bring the cross piece out, and they hooked the cross piece up, and they kind of raised them up, and, and they hung there in the, in the crucifix-looking position. But that's not how it used to happen. They didn't have a dead tree that they put people on or a stake that they put people on. They walked you out to a living tree. And they took that cross member and they hooked it up to a living tree. And you hung on a living tree. And in the case of Yeshua and his example with the two thieves that were on the cross with him, they were around the tree. They were hanging around the tree so they could lean and whisper and speak to each other. And they weren't elevated way up high. They were kind of just hanging right there in front of you. And it's a much different scene when you really understand what happened in the crucifixion about being hung on a tree than the, the stylized symbol that we have of the cross and, you know, being, you know, nice and erect and trimmed boards and all that kind of thing. I love the movie uh, Ben-Hur. And the, and the stirring scene in it of the, of the crucifixion has always been a very stirring one to me. And while it made for good Hollywood, you know, to have it raised up the way it was and all that, that's really not the way it was done. The way it was done was they took him over onto the Mount of Olives and they hung him on an olive tree. That's really what happened. The Mount of Olives throughout the history... Uh, after the crucifixion was that that ground was even more uh, special to the messianic peoples because there were three great things that had taken place there the lord had been crucified there he had been buried there and he had ascended there and in fact there is a tomb over there on the mount of olives the researchers and the archaeologists says clearly indicates that's probably really where it all happened the reason why that's so significant is because if you were sitting in the Holy of Holies from God's point of view and you were to look out the doorway right across the altar, there he would be, pictured right above the altar in God's view, so that when he died on the Mount of Olives, he was in full view of the Lord. And we know that there's a, there's a critical piece of evidence there about the centurion when he saw the great earthquake and how the great veil had been rent. And the testimony is given that the centurion saw this. The only place you can be that could see such an event and be a centurion is you must be on the Mount of Olives. And there's a whole series of other evidences that are now coming out as a result of some uh, very good archaeological research to indicate that this event, which we've always been picturing up on upon, uh, you know, the, by the bus stop, the air bus stop, and the garden tomb and the other tourist traps, you know, that they've set up, that that doesn't make sense. That it was over on the Mount of Olives that all of this took place. In full view of the living God and the Spirit of the Holy One from the Holy Holies looking right out through the temple and seeing the whole thing. That was the same ground, the clean place, where they would also slay the red heifer. It's important that he come down off of that tree 
the day he died, as the Torah says. And the man who did that was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Why did he do that? Why did he take the personal risk to go and to remove the body of Yeshua and to put him into a grave before the sun went down? It wasn't just so much as this commandment says here with regard to so that the land is not defiled, but there's another, there's another part of the message that's being explained in this Torah portion, and he did it because of the teaching of this portion. He did that one act because of the teaching that is given here. Let me go just a bit further with you. In chapter 22, it says, You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to him. You shall surely bring them back to your countryman. And if your countryman is not near you or you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your home or your house. And it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it. Then you shall restore it to him. And thus you shall do with his donkey and you shall do with the same with his garment and you shall do likewise with anything lost by your countrymen, which he has lost, and you have found, and you are not allowed to neglect them. And it goes on a little bit further, and and listen to this teaching. Verse 6, If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother from the young. You shall surely let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and that you will prolong your days. Interesting. Teaching about a wife, teaching about dealing with a son, teaching to deal with someone who's been accursed and died and is hung on a tree, and dealing with little birds that have fallen from the tree and are in a nest on the ground. And it goes on, there's some other instances that go in here, and it tends to repeat it, but what's so fascinating about it, there's the one theme that stands out in all of this, and it's in one simple word for us. It's the word kindness. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the Lord has a whole teaching just to teach you to be kind. You know what the first thing He says is He says, Be kind to your wife. That's probably pretty important. It might be well with you if you were kind to your wife. It would certainly not be well with you if you were not kind to your wife. So he begins and he says, the first thing that you need to understand is how you take your wife you better be kind to her. He says, "Even even if you go out to battle And she's part of the captives. You will do this for her. You will give her one month to mourn the loss of her family, her mother, her father. You won't just go in and decide to be her husband. You will think about her feelings and be kind to her, even if she is captive. You will still be kind to her. And it goes on a whole series of other instances. And it talks about all the... There's a series of commandments in there that this is where we deal about divorce. The subject of divorce. The Torah has a lot to say about divorce. Let me just give you a synopsis so that you get a sense of where it's coming. It says divorce is a tragedy. 
It hurts. When you, uh, when you get married to someone, you do it by a vow. It's not a contract, you know, with a blowout clause. Some people think it is when they get married. It's not a promise, and you can just kind of, you know, not keep your promise. It's done by a vow. And the vows, the problem with vows is if you make a vow, God requires it of you. Because the fact is, a vow has the power that God used to create the universe. By the spoken word, you create the reality of marriage. You literally pull the future down and you make a reality all around you that says from this moment forward, we're married. The whole world recognizes this reality. Those that see you make these vows from then on out. There'll never be a question with them. They're married. Because the vows are that strong. They create the reality of it. And there is no tear point in a vow for when you want to undo it. When you want to undo it, you're going to rip the shred of reality in your life. You're just going to tear right down through the heart, right down through your identity, and it's going to be a tragedy when you get done. And you know what? why divorces happen? It comes down to a real simple thing. They decide to quit being kind to each other. That's what it is. It's not a deal about, well, gee, I don't love them. You know, there's many times when there are, within family members, they do things you just don't love. But you're still kind to them. You still treat them with a certain measure of courtesy and respect, and you're still kind to them. But when you rip away the kindness, you've ripped it away. Then there is no no way to be restored, no way to make amends, because we're not even kind to each other anymore. And part of this uh, instruction that is given here is without saying the word is to lay the case out why you should be kind. It's to talk about, and it says in here, to, to think about what it is that she has entered into you with, the manner and the way that you've been, and whether or not you're dealing with her in a treacherous manner. And basically, if we could just have that reminder on a daily basis, why don't you just treat her with some measure of kindness? Wives, why don't you treat him with just a little bit of kindness? You'd be able to keep it together. But when the kindness goes, so goes the relationship. Same thing happens with children. Now, generally, you you don't have to tell a a parent to be kind to the children because there's just something in us that just makes us the way we are. We just flow and and we're, we're that way. But when the children quit being kind, when they quit being kind, then things start changing dramatically. And in the case of those who go through adolescence and uh, the teenage years, the thing that should be a warning signal, a spiritual warning signal to you that something's not right, this is going to go the wrong way, is when they don't even render kindness back to the parents. No kindness. If you can just keep that part going, the others will sort themselves out. But when that one gets ripped away, things start going the wrong direction. And then great damage is going to take place. The, 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 the reason why the Torah gives us 
this business about the man who's, even the man who's condemned to death, that you shall not let him hang upon the tree. You shall put him in the grave is because the Torah commandment is even if he's your enemy, even if he was a convicted murderer, even if he's the most evil man, once he's dead, you will still be kind to him. You'll at least be kind to his body. And at least you'll give him a proper burial. The uh, I don't know if you noticed this or not. This is a very common thing in the land of Israel. When the bombs go off in the streets... And in the last week while I was watching um, the newsreels, and I'm sure that you probably saw the same thing I did, did you see the rabbis out there? You know, with the yellow things on and the, and the, and the, uh, the four-cornered garments and tzitzits, and they had the gloves, and there were the yarmulkes, and they were busily moving along. You know what they're there for? They're there to pick up the little tiny pieces of the victims. That's their job. The one work that the rabbis do in Israel, and it's a work of kindness. Whether it be a, the bomber or a bomb victim, it doesn't make any difference. We're going to go and treat with respect and be kind to this person who's now dead. Listen, they have no more choices to make. <laughs> they have no more theology. <laughs> you know, they're into eternity now. And all we're going to do is show a little kindness to the fact that that person still was created by God and will render at least the kindness to them to bury them. The, uh, and to, to, to bury them properly is an act of kindness. The kindness to your neighbor, the kind where... You see, when you have a neighbor and you have a friend, that's a really special relationship. If you really want to abuse people, that's the one you can do it in. You ever heard of the story of the fellow who was hospitable and had another family move in with him? And after the three days, it started to go downhill. I know some Christian brethren who have opened their home up and been hospitable, and literally people have gone in and abused them, stayed in their home for weeks, eaten the food, acted like it was their place. No kindness whatsoever on their part. Oh, there's kindness on the part of the one offering the home. But where's the kindness for the person who's receiving? They think they're entitled? They've forgotten kindness? If they would just show kindness, they could stay almost indefinitely because of the hospitality. But because of the lack of kindness... It becomes a terrible situation. And these are amongst brethren. A terrible situation. And, and, the, and the, your definition of the character of this person who would come and do such a thing changes dramatically. You have a whole new view of them because of the lack of kindness. I know a man who claims to be in the ministry and he travels around. And, he, and I'm, I'm just going to be straight, just freeloads off of believers. Freeloads, abusing family after family. Goes around, preaches a great story, you know, lays hands on people, ministers, very charismatic in his personality. People open up their homes, they're generous, they're kind to him. He comes in and he just abuses it. And by the way, he's got a wife and five kids. 
And when they take over a home, they flat take it over. No kindness. None whatsoever. Do you? I wasn't referring to you, brother, but you're welcome. Yes. You know the old expression about that guests, uh, friends are like fish. You know, after three days they start to stink. The, um, the, the way the commandment is given here, it says you're supposed to be kind to your neighbor. If your neighbor's ox gets loose, now the farmers and the ranchers, they know about this basic thing because this is survival to them. They rely on their neighbor down the road who the fence would break down and they didn't see it and their animal got loose and they, they, they rely on their neighbor to come out there and protect their livestock and bring them under control and notify them so they can come and retrieve them. And it says this is an act of kindness, you know, to do this. The um, kindness to animals and birds, God says you're supposed to be. It has psychologically been proven that if you have a small child who abuses small animals, you do not want to see that kid when he's grown up as a man. They're serial killers, usually. Homicidal maniacs. And all of them have a very common background. They used to, you know, torture small animals, dogs and cats and other things like that. If they never learned a kindness then with a small animal, they have absolutely no kindness for another human being when they're an adult. It's symptomatic. They never learned how to be kind. When I was a young boy, uh, it was one of my lifelong desires to throw a rock as accurately as I possibly could, and I used to throw rocks everywhere I go. If there was a, it was somebody put in a new gravel thing, I'd throw 50 or 60 rocks out of their driveway just to keep up practicing on my rock throwing. And one day I saw a bird. And of course I was, I used to like, you know, I could like project out where the rock was going to go. And, and it was just fascinating to me, the whole concept. And, and uh, one day there was a bird that was under a bush and it got ready to fly up. And I anticipated just exactly how the bird was going to fly up. And I threw this rock and it was kind of, you know, one of those flat ones, and it kind of would have a little boomerang thing to it. And I took that into account, and I threw this rock, and the bird took off, and I nailed this bird. I killed this bird dead. Now, there were two things that hit me. One, that was incredible that I threw that rock so accurately and nailed this bird in flight. And two, I could barely hardly see because my eyes were crying. And it was, it, teardrops were streaming down my face. And I remember thinking, what was I thinking? Didn't I think I'd hit one once in a while? I've been trying for years, you know, to hit a bird in flight with a rock. I finally did it. And I killed this bird dead. I mean, it's about, it's about like you walking down the mall and a boulder about this big running over you. This bird didn't have a chance. And I remember being so stirred. Like, and I quit throwing rocks after that. That's what, that's what broke me. I quit throwing rocks. I couldn't believe I had killed this bird. And immediately I thought about, you know, this bird belonged to some other birds. 
you know, what, what about its family? And where, where was it, you know, where was its nest? And maybe there was young that there was, that was not going to go back to the nest. I mean, all of these thoughts flooded through me and I just lost control. I mean, I weeped profusely out there. I went and buried that bird. I got me a shovel, dug, I buried that bird. Um, I thank God that he put within me a sense of kindness. Amen. You know, I made a big mistake. I, I didn't understand. I hadn't thought the thing through. I was just stumbling along, and then I finally did it. And I suddenly realized this is not good. This is not good. So I tried to render what small kindness I could back. The Torah gives most emphatically of all the commandments concerning kindness to the following three groups. This is fascinating. Strangers. Travelers. You Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? The number one person that we're to be kind to is the Gentile. Because, you know, he's a stranger in the land. He's, he's walking. He, he doesn't have a home here. He's traveling. He's at the mercy of anywhere he runs into. Be kind to him, it says. Be kind to the widow and the orphan. James teaches us that true religion, true worship of God, is how you treat the widow and the orphan. I have a friend of mine um, lives down southways. She's a very nice lady. She was widowed. She had three children. When she was widowed, her youngest had, was a newborn. She was in a real nice church, real active. And they, boy, all the sympathy cards and so forth came forth for her. They took up a special offering. And they refurbished the kitchen with it. She's waiting on an insurance check, and her checking account's frozen. She's got no money, and the money that comes in that's given by all the different brethren, the church takes and refurbishes the kitchen and puts a plaque in her husband's name up in the kitchen and didn't give a thing to her. They're in trouble with the Lord. They are in trouble. That is not obeying the commandment. To be kind to the widow and the orphan. They literally took the money, the food, right out of their mouths. I don't know what they were thinking, but it wasn't right. Then when she got her insurance check in, you know, he provided for her. When they got, they made a special call on her to remind her that she needed to tithe that. That's not part of the commandment, by the way. That's not the commandment, that the widow and the orphan is to tithe. You know what the, what the actual commandment is? That the tithe is to go to the widow and the orphan. That if you know there's a widow and an orphan, you are to take the tithe to them. That's what the law says. That's what the commandments of the Lord say. In fact, the commandments are so emphatic, it goes through a series of commandments here, and it says, even if you have a, if you have an olive tree and you go out to gather up the olives off of it, if any olives fall to the ground, 
while you're harvesting, you're not to pick them up. You can pick the ones off the tree. But if any of them, you know, fall down, any fruit falls to the ground, it's for the widow and the orphan. If you go in and you harvest and you look through, the, you know, you know how you look through the branches and you try to get every bit of fruit and then you go, you get past it and you look back and you say, well, look at that. There's a whole bunch there I didn't even get. You're not, you're not, according to the law, you're not permitted to go back because it's for the widow and the orphan. It says that if you have the sheaves out there in the field and you've gathered them up and bundled them and you haul them all in, but you forgot one, you're not permitted to go back and get it. It's for the widow and the orphan. It's for the poor. It's for the stranger, for the traveler, for the, for the alien. You're not to reap the corner of the field right on the corner that goes by the road in the path. You're not supposed to reap that part there. That's supposed to be for the traveler, the widow and the orphan, so she can step into the field and get what she needs out of it with her hands. She doesn't have to go walking all the way halfway across the field. Find so you left it there for them. The Lord says that if you'll do that, he'll bless you and prosper us and cause our way to be well. But we don't, uh, we don't do that. We've got new harvesting methods. <laughs> The uh, harvesting method is the way they harvest uh, olives now in the new modern ways. They go out and they got a machine that actually takes the trunk of the tree and shakes the tree. And these fruit trees and so on, it shakes the tree and it just knocks all the fruit right off it. According to the law, everybody that hits the ground is for the widow and the orphan, but they pick it all up and take it. They take every bit of it. They violate the commandment to be kind. For profit, of course. It's my tree. I don't have to be kind. It's my ground, my fruit. They forget the earth that was made by the Lord, the tree that was made by the Lord, the fruit that's made by the Lord. And they forget to be kind. And they choose, rather, prophets instead of kindness. Let me show you a corresponding passage that's over in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that speaks to this whole Torah portion, particularly on the subject of widows and orphans. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here's Paul's instruction. And at verse 1 it says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. You know what it's really trying to say? Be kind to them. Treat them with a measure of kindness. You know, matter of fact, when you treat the old guy, you know, treat him like he's your dad. How would you treat your dad? You'd be kind to him. Be nice to him. Treat him, treat him that way. When it's an older lady, treat her as kindly as you would your own mother. You know, prefer and give her the seat. Be kind to her. Verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of the Lord. You see, the reason why God causes your parents to grow old, turn back into babies again, so that you have to take care of them is so that you can learn and render back what they did for you. They did it for about 18 years for you. So you get to do a few years back for them, to be kind back to them. And then you'll remember how kind they must have been to you when you didn't understand anything. And it says that if a widow has her children or grandchildren, they should learn. They should learn to take care of them. 
In verse 5, Now she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who has given herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. And it goes on a little bit further, and in verse 9 it says, Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation of good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. I have news for you. You know, that welfare system and the Medicaid system that our government has, it's a cheap substitute for what God commanded us to do. And it devalues and dehumanizes the people who have to go through it. What the Bible really tells us, and what God's commandments tell us both in Old and New Testament, is if there's a widow in your midst, she's in excess of 60 years old, Her only hope is in God. It doesn't care whether there is a Medicaid system or that she saved up a few shekels or whatever along her life. You're supposed to take the responsibility to care for you. In fact, you're supposed to put her on a list in your congregation, and she is to be your congregation's ministry. Primary, first place, ministry. In front of buildings, in front of pastors, in front of all that stuff. How many churches do you know that goes around making a list of the widows so that they can care for them? To make sure that they they know they're going to be taken care of. They don't have to fret or worry. They don't have to cry out to God and say, God, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Not very many. In fact, in my lifetime, I've never met one of them. Never one, one congregation that does it. Now, I've heard lots of excuses. Well, you know, we live in a wonderful country and we've got Social Security and... All the people that I see that go under that system, they just like lose their identity. It's like they just waste away. Nobody, you know, my mother used to be a nursing home administrator. I know a little something about this. And the saddest thing there is to see in a nursing home is some old person come in there and and nobody ever comes to see them again. And their most valued friend is a nurse's aide on minimum wage who comes in to change the sheets. That's the only human dignity and kindness that gets shown to them. Because there's nobody else. And the whole place is full of rich churches. All kinds of brethren. Nobody cares. Nobody can show any level of kindness We've been commanded to. We've been told and taught that if your religious is worth anything, it'll be demonstrated by the way that you treat the widow and the orphan with kindness. But we really, we really don't do that. We're kind of busy. We got other really important stuff, big theological stuff we need to take care of. We got, we got all kinds of problems of our own. And uh, we, we, we don't have any resources or finances. We can't do anything like that. 
And besides that, everybody knows if you go and try to treat them with some kindness, you know, they become so dependent upon you and then you, you, you can't keep it up and, and it's frustrating and, and so forth. I don't think those excuses will really hold a lot of water with the Lord when it comes time to take and give an account on this. And I think this is the one that will be the absolute clincher. I think, I think religious men, up to a certain extent, will think, okay, we're holding our own, holding our own, hearing this, giving an account to the Lord, and then they'll get to the widows and orphans thing, and you might as well put the gun to your head and blow it clean away. Because we ain't going to make it on this one. I got an interesting phone call. A lady at a retirement home Young, young gal who's an activity director. One of those retirement places. And they've got this, uh, got this lady. She's like 73 years old. She's a widow. She's got nobody. No children. No family. And, uh, she'd marked on her little thing that she said she was Jewish. And this activity director at this little retirement place, she'd, know, she'd talked to her and that she'd given, yeah, she was Jewish. So she had called, you know, got the yellow pages out and started calling down the list of anything Jewish. And she finally got to us and uh, said, uh, can, can you do anything? I mean, I, I said, I don't know. Said I. I said, we're going to have to do something because the Lord's commanding us to do something, so we'd better go check it out. So we had some people from the congregation go to visit her. Turns out she's a spry little old gal. She's got cancer. Probably going to be passing on soon. But she's got a personality, and she's got an identity, and she's cheerful, and she's kind of enjoyable to sit and talk with, and, and she's, kind of, she's got an interesting life you know, that she's had. And uh, so we've made the arrangements to um, go over and kind of just befriend her a little bit. She's a long ways away. It's an hour from here. I mean, if you're going to go visit her, it's a long ways. But we got some brethren that live a little closer than that. And so they've checked on her. And she needs a ride every day so she can go get her radiation treatments. You know, and the difficulty she's going to go through with that. She's running out of money. She did a great job. She took care of herself well. She saved her money. She sold her house. She, she, she hung on to her money. She did very well. She got herself set, situated, got a good contract into this place. And now because of the health problems and all the other stuff, the money's going away. In fact, they told me that they don't know where, what she's going to do come December because she don't have enough money to live there anymore. And only if uh, the doctor declares that she's terminally ill would is there even anything that can possibly be done for her. Maybe, you know, she'd be classified as hospice and then maybe some other things will kick in and then they'll pay for her at the nursing home. And I went to see her and she just, uh, she, she, it was kind of enjoyable to sit there and talk to her. She's not concerned about uh, her cancer or anything like that. Um... She was a little concerned about having to go to a nursing home, though. She, you know, you could get that sense from her. She knows what that means. That's the end of the line. That's what that means to her. No more life. 
No more friends. Nothing. Just kind of an existence. And then it all goes away. And uh, I sat and I spoke with her and I said, well, what, what, is it, what are your needs at the moment? What, is there anything we can do? And, you know, 73 years old, her medicine bills are like $260 a month. 200, you know, can you believe that? You know, you just can't. I told her, I said, it gets expensive to get old around here. And what are you going to do? It's just going to eat into her money and she's not going to have a place to go. And she's really wondering what in the world is going to happen to me. All my life I've taken care of myself and done it. And now she's got down no kids, no family, nothing. She's got a little Jewish identity. And she has a God. And she's hoping this God will come through for her. A little kindness on our part will probably encourage her. And in fact, that's what we intend to do, is to be kind to her and help her and encourage her, be friends to her, assure her, let her know she's not going to be alone. And I think that she qualifies for a lady that ought to be on the list for a congregation, maybe ours that we would take the responsibility to be kind to her and make sure that she's honored and dignified, which is what she's entitled to be. And I have a distinct sense from the Lord that it's kind of like a test for our congregation. You want to serve me? Well, let's see how you, how you want to serve me. Are you willing to do this, pass this test? Remember the, the, the fellow that called up a few weeks ago and had need? It was a test. Now we have a lady That's a little bigger test. Where is she going to live? How will she live? Will she have any friends? Are we willing to be kind to them? Are we willing to do that? It's another test to see how we're going to do. That uh, scripture says there in 1 Timothy, it goes on to say that we are to put them on a list. We are to care for them. Make sure they're taken care of. When I uh, first got involved in the Messianic movement many, many years ago, back in Colorado Springs, one of the first things that showed up when we first formed the congregation was a Jewish man who didn't know Yeshua, who was dying of liver cancer. And I mean, this guy had really been put through the ringer. And he had gone through two wives and they had taken everything. And the family had abandoned him. Literally, when we met him, we were contacted by some people from Sweden trying to find somebody, you know, to go and help this guy. Guy's sick, he can't get around, he's got no car, stuck in his big, huge mansion house that they cleaned everything out of. So we got him some food, got some ladies, they came over and cleaned it, got him some linen, got him a bed. Well, it wasn't too long after that, you know, he had to go in and he passed away. However, the one interesting thing that happened was is that he wept. And he said, thank you, because I didn't know what I was going to eat or where I would be. And as a result of the kindness that was shown, he asked us, who did we believe in and why? And three days before his death, he accepted Yeshua as the Messiah. We went to his funeral I'll never forget this funeral. 
typical Jewish funeral. Got three rabbis there trying to figure out who's going to take charge. <laughs> and uh, the family, and you know, now that he's dead, everybody's checking in to see if there's any inheritance, you know. <laughs> And uh, so we were there at the memorial service, and there was about, oh, four or five of us guys from the congregation there. And, of course, we were messianic, so, you know, the Lubavitcher rabbi and the local uh, conservative rabbi, they didn't want to talk to us. And they, didn't, they wanted to know why we were there. So, well, we know for it. We've been feeding him, you know, for the last several months, taking care of him. And because of the kindness, they couldn't kick us out. That was our credential to be present, even with the family, because we'd been kind to him. And um, I'll never forget this one guy got up and did the little eulogy thing. In a, in a Jewish uh, funeral, uh, often they'll have people who've known the deceased, and they'll get up and they give a little testimony, and they'll just kind of share about what they know of the man. And this guy got up and he told this incredible life story. You know, he had talked to him at some length, and he told him the story about how he was a Holocaust survivor and a pioneer of Israel and lived in New York and been a multimillionaire a couple of times and was in the jewelry business and had imported diamonds from Israel to the U.S. and, and had set up jewelry stores and was uh, president of the Chamber of Commerce in the city at one point and, and uh, was a socialite, and uh, now his life just went downhill. His wives took him to the cleaners. But he kept talking to him about he was a survivor. You know, he survived the Holocaust, he survived Israel, survived this business loss, survived his wife, survived everything. And I'll never forget the moment where he leaned over the pulpit, looked down at the casket, and he said, Fred, I don't know how you did this, but I have the strangest sense that you survived even this. Us messianic guys back there in unison went, Amen. And everybody was looking around. He did. He survived even death. The Lord took care of him. And our congregation went forward, and I have watched this in every Messianic congregation I've been involved with. God brings in some Jewish person who's about to check out and go into eternity. I've seen it. And it's like God uses that situation to unify that little congregation and get their heart right and get, get, get the crosshairs lined up on what God really is trying to do here and as a result of doing that ministry, we learn an important concept for ourselves. And that is to be kind. The wives pitch in and help out. People go and they, they just do a little act of kindness. Nothing big, nothing significant. Just be kind. And the, the effect on the congregation is unbelievable. It's like, it's like a, a flower, you know, blossoming out as to what takes place in the congregation. And I have a feeling that that's what the Lord wants this congregation to learn, to be kind to one another. And that's what this Torah portion is all about. It's about all these different weird circumstances. And it never says the word, but it's all about kindness. It's all about kindness. In fact, let me read for you the Haftor portion, which is, do you, do you guys understand the concept of the Haftor portion, that during the times of persecution when the Torah couldn't be taught, they would take a corresponding portion of the prophets or other segments of the Tanakh, and they would teach that, but the theme is always about the Torah portion. And they would literally teach the Torah portion through the prophets and the other writings. 
And in this particular case, they chose from Isaiah 54 to try to teach the essence of what this Torah portion is. Isaiah 54, beginning at verse 1, listen to this. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more for the for your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken. So that says the Lord who has compassion on you. The lesson here in a strange sort of way is Moses is trying to, I I call it the reverse psychology method because he's really kind of speaking to the subject but kind of around from the back side of it. And in and, and the way Moses says it, he says, you will not detest the Edomite. You will not detest him. He's your brother. Edom was the brother of Jacob. Esau was the brother. And he settled the Edomites, their family. Treat them with kindness. I know you're not connected to him anymore, but still treat him with kindness. And he says, the Egyptians, you will not hate the Egyptians. Remember You lived in their land. You were a stranger there. You were an alien there. Remember, think back. Some of them treated you with kindness along the way. Remember, there's one or two that did treat you with kindness. So you will not hate them. You remember the kindnesses that have been done to you so that you might be kind to others. And sure, there's lots of places in there where we deal with the enemies. But the vast majority... If you'll stop and remember for just a bit, they've been kind to us. Maybe we should render a little kindness back. Um, You know, it's interesting within a congregational life, usually we go through a little bit of a cycle. When we're young and we're we're new and and we don't have anything, (laughs) we're like a married couple, you know, we're just in love with each other and we just want to serve the Lord and, and, and we get going and then we get a little prosperity to come in. And the first thing that goes out the window is being nice to each other. We're no longer kind to each other. Then it becomes theological. Well, so-and-so, he don't believe the way I believe. And all that other kind of business. And the next thing you know, we're at each other's throats. 
course, everybody's swearing up now. Oh, I'm obeying the Lord God. I'm loving my neighbors myself. But we're not being kind to each other. We're not giving anybody the benefit of the doubt. We'll take innuendo and rumor to the bank with regard if it's one of our brethren. Now, if it's heathen, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But if they're brethren, no, we know they're guilty and we'll treat them as such. And they get no kindness from me. That's what happens to us. We throw the kindness business out. That's the first thing that goes. You know, if we just stay kind to each other, it'd be a whole lot different. We'd find out about one another's needs. We might actually even show some acts of kindness and actually help somebody. To show a little interest in somebody besides yourself. You know, what a novel idea. That sounds almost consistent with the spiritual, uh, you know, walking with the Lord instead of being religious. We need to be kind to our children. We need to be kind to those who are not quite as well off as we are, like, you know, even those people that died. We ought to be kind to people that died. We ought to be kind to animals. We ought to be kind to our brethren. And maybe, just maybe, we might get the concept that just maybe we should, you know, display just a touch of this toward the Lord himself. And maybe just be a little bit kind to him, too. Because it's completely consistent with our faith. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a wonderful verse that says this. I've got this reference down here for you. I wanted to show you. It's in the New Testament, and it has to do with building the different qualities toward the Lord. In fact, I think it's 2 Peter 1. Move over there with me real quickly. 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 5. Let me, let me check that. Here's, a, here's, a, here's Peter's overall view of how we should be walking the faith, and he says this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. I want you to take note of that. Between godliness and love is kindness. Whew. Kindness is a little bit more important than what we thought. The rest of this Torah portion is really trying to explain to you that if you have this missing ingredient, you can't get from godliness anywhere else if you don't have kindness. Don't even think you're going to try to get away trying to explain somebody that you love someone if you're not going to use kindness and go anyplace else. There's lots of people going around saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm godly. I'm looking, you know, I'm, I want to follow godliness. And then there's no kindness and nobody sees any love. You will not find any love because there is no kindness and vice versa. Oh, I love. Well, you're never going to get to godliness without kindness. It goes both ways. It, it's kind of interesting how it's kind of bracketed right in there. The fact of the matter is that you can be not so loving with your brethren, but you can still be kind and maintain the relationship to godliness. But if you don't have kindness, forget it. You're not going to get to godliness. There's lots of reasons, brethren, along the way for you to have disputes. People misbehave. People don't do the right thing. People forget. People make mistakes. You don't have to love the behavior that went wrong. But what you can do is you can still be kind. But when you quit being kind in the dispute, the whole deal's over. 
forget the reconciliation thing. The reason why the Middle East peace process has come to a screeching halt is they can't even be kind anymore. Not even diplomatically kind anymore. They're to the point now we won't even shake hands. They're to the point that I don't even want to be in the same room with them. They don't have to. We're talking about hated enemies here. But when you don't even have the kindness to be in the same room with the person, forget it. You're not going to. You're not going to accomplish anything. And the same thing is true of all of our relationships, as to how we um, do proceed and so forth. It's interesting that the prophet Hosea, Micah, and Zechariah. It, it's kind of interesting because when he talks about when they talk about repentance. When they talked about Israel getting back with the Lord, return to the Lord, their exhortation goes something like this. Hosea 12, 6 says, return to God. How do you return to God? Observe kindness and do justice. Just be kind. That's how you get back to God. Micah, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. Kindness is in there again. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9, he says, Dispense justice, practice kindness and compassion. The one common trait of all the prophets when they speak of repentance is the word kindness. You want to repent before the Lord? You really want to get straight with the Lord? You want to walk before the Lord? Start being kind to people around you. Start being kind to your wife, your children, your neighbors. Be kind. Just calm it down a little bit. Get the rhetoric down. Shut the rhetoric off. You know the old expression, if you can't say anything good, but don't say anything at all? Even, even we count that as kindness. If you just keep your mouth shut, it's still interpreted as kindness. Just that is an act of kindness. Just the fact that you didn't, you know, blast the guy. It's amazing what it does. The, the, the work it does for it. And of course, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you'll find it right there in the middle of the list. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. To be kind. It's a real simple lesson. It's really not a, not a hard, hard lesson at all. The exhortation that I would like to give you, brethren, just try to be kind. You don't have to, you know, do great acts of love and, and do big projects and so forth. Just be careful about what you say with your mouth, you know, to one another. Um, and if you have something negative you want to say, just hold off a little bit on that one. And if you'd really like to do something good, you know, try to figure out what that other person over there might might enjoy or appreciate and do and, and do an act of kindness for them. Think about in terms of you, how how have you benefited? How have they been to you? Remember the good they've done to you. Dwell on that, think on that, and then go and do something good for them. Take their interests to heart. And see what you can do, you know, for them. The scripture says, 
that when you do that, you're walking right beside the Lord. That's what it says. It says at that moment that you're walking with the Lord, and this is the way of the righteous to show kindness to one another. Now, in the future, we're going to have to remind ourselves of this lesson. And we ought to extend kindness to the people who are not so sure how they're going to make it. We ought to extend a little kindness, you know, to those that are closest to us. Shock them. Scare them half to death. Make them actually think that, hey, I guess that faith that you've been walking around with is real. You know, surely God made you do that because I know you don't have the capacity to do that. You know, so maybe my prayers are finally being answered. That's what we ought to do. I'm serious. That's what we really ought to do. Take care of each other. Care for each other. Because it'll be real. It'll be genuine. It'll be pleasant. Instead of, you know, just being theologically correct. Of which we'll always be striving to do that, but I doubt that we'll get there until the Messiah gets back. But the kindness thing is something that we can perfect. It is something that we can work on now and we can do well. And it would be well with us if we were to do it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for the instruction that comes that when we go out. And Lord, the instruction is that when we go out to remember to take kindness with us. No matter what the situation be, what relationship that it might be to be kind to one another, remember and understand the plight and the plot of that person's life and to look with kindness. Lord, I'm not sure exactly how to do this other than to just do it one step at a time and to learn to practice it and to accomplish it. Lord, I would pray that you would put upon all of the people a warm, pleasant sense of the spirit of yourself, that you would show us, Lord, how easy it is to be kind and that you would cause that, uh, that one commandment to prevail. I thank you, Lord, for every person who has come who's already demonstrated this and we've already benefited from those who've been kind to us. Thank you, Lord, that you've already established this within them. Thank you, Lord, for those who come and serve, who walk humbly before you and do the right things and minister to others and serve others. Thank you for the work of kindness and their acts of kindness toward us. And Lord, we would pray that you would make us wise unto doing the works of kindness and that you would cause uh, our way to be obedient on this. This commandment, Lord, just seems so simple for us to obey. Some of the others are kind of hard, but this one, it just seems like it would be fun and enjoyable and pleasant to do. So, Lord, I pray that you might uh, inspire us and encourage us, build us up in the faith that we might be kind people. And may we may do so uh, in a way that uh, ministers to others. And Lord, even those in our midst who are hurting, have needs, make us wise unto them too, Lord, so that we might know how to be kind even unto them. Guard our tongue so that we might love and care for one another. And we ask this all in the name of Messiah, Yeshua. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.